Welcome back to the Bridge Builder podcast, an initiative of the Minnesota Catholic Conference. In each episode of the Bridge Builder, we help you live more deeply your call to faithful citizenship. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and joining me in studio, as usual, is my co-host for the Bridge Builder, Rachel Herbeck, Minnesota Catholic Conference Policy and Outreach Coordinator. Rachel, this is going to be a good one, I think, today. Yeah, it really is. I mean, they're all good, but this, they, get, they get better. We, we have a very <laughs> special guest who we're excited to introduce to you, so that's going to be outstanding. First of all, we have to thank our sponsors and our hosts, Relevant Radio 1330 AM, here in sunny Golden Valley, Minnesota, for the use of their recording studio, and to our sponsor... Uh, for this episode of The Bridge Builder, the Knights of Columbus, Minnesota State Council, the Knights of Columbus, are building the domestic church. Today, we hope uh, to get a unique perspective on the lessons and leadership of Pope St. John Paul II and what he has left the world, a great gift and a deeper understanding of Catholic social teaching. We'll be speaking with Andreas Widmer, a former Swiss guard and entrepreneur who is now a professor nurturing other prospective entrepreneurs and young Catholic thinkers. Plus, would you ace a test on Catholic social teaching? Andreas was going to be helping us uh, navigate some of the research he's done and make you second guess just how really well you understand it. <laughs> Finally, um, in our bricklayer segment, we'll talk about the lay vocation, some things you can do to discern your vocation in the public arena, what specific things you're called to, how can you use, you, you use your effects, uh, gifts effectively to transform your corner of the vineyard. And I forgot, Rachel, our classic Catholic social teaching segment. We're discussing Octogesima Advenians on the occasion of the 80th anniversary of the encyclical Rerum Novarum. This was actually published in 1971 by Pope Paul VI, but again, we like to bring back classic Catholic documents because the Church gives us perennial truths, and how we apply those in our time is a, a consideration for us, and uh, we try to bring these documents back because we think they're worthy of consideration in our times today. Rachel, tell us a little bit more about that bricklayer segment, though. Yeah, and I think, as, as you mentioned, that that classic Catholic social teaching we're going to discuss, I think, will work really nicely with our discussion on um, taking action. You know, we talk a lot in this podcast, if you're a listener, about taking action, but it's not one size fits all, right? Because we're all uniquely gifted. We're all uniquely disposed um, to be effective in certain ways, according to how the Holy Spirit's moving us. So we're going to talk about some practical things of how do you even start, you know, with figuring out what am I gifted for? You know, where should I, what path should I go down in this, this large area of advocacy? So we're going to talk about some tools for you. Excellent. Well, we're privileged, and we should just jump right in. We have on the line uh, Andreas Widmer. He is a Swissman and a professor of uh, entrepreneurship at the Catholic University of America, where he's the director of the Sioka Center for Entrepreneurship. He had a very unique experience serving as a Swiss guard under the, during the pontificate of Pope John Paul II, which then led to his publication of a book, the Pope and the CEO, Pope John Paul II's Lessons to a Young Swiss Guard. He is really um, putting out some really great research and perspectives on Catholic social teaching and living that, and we're delighted to have Andreas with us today. Andreas, welcome to the Bridge Builder Podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be with you. If you could sh share with us a little bit about your time as a member of the Swiss Guard and how that prepared you for your current service in the Church. Well, uh, you'd be surprised to know that most of the... So the Swiss cars are Swiss, and they have to be Catholic, but there's no litmus test. Most of the Swiss guards who join don't go there particularly because of the faith, but because being a Swiss, being a bodyguard is a pretty cool thing. And that's why I went. I wasn't uh, particularly faithful or adhering, or, or even um, adhering to the faith. 
But then uh, when I joined, I met, of course, John Paul II, who uh, the Swiss Guard's only job is to protect the person of the Holy Father. So there's other forces around who protect the Vatican and so on. But we only protect the Pope, and therefore we're around the Pope quite a bit. And the Pope is at heart, is, is a priest, and is uh, therefore just ministering to people around him. And that very often happened to be the Swiss Guards, and I was very blessed to have John Paul minister to me and help me find my faith. Um, and that, of course, changed things uh, in my life. I, went, I left the Swiss Guards very differently than when I arrived. And, yeah, I, I feel I also have to sort of pinch myself that I was evangelized by a saint. <laughs> but so many of us are, by the way. It's just that those most saints who evangelize uh, us aren't declared saints, but they probably they probably are. Um, and so this, these two years working with John Paul II have uh, changed my way I see my own life, and therefore my vocation and what I do in life. And that has led me to become an entrepreneur. I eventually immigrated into uh, to America and um, met my wife here, or met my wife in Rome, but but married her here in the United States and started to be an entrepreneur. And I've done that for a good uh, 28 years before I changed over here and started to teach entrepreneurship. Hmm. Andreas, I love that, you know, the description you described of your time with St. John Paul II. It seems that there are so many stories of people, you know, spending time in his presence and they were tr transformed, you know. And I know um, even in my own life, of John St. John Paul II was... Um, a, a huge hero for my dad and his leadership principles and his leadership for the church, I think, really formed how he even led his business and our family, you know, as a man, as as John Paul being one of his heroes. And so can you talk a little bit about, you know, the specifics of some of the things that you learned from him there? And, you know, we're talking about your book, The Pope and the CEO, Pope John Paul II's Lessons to a Young Switch Guard, which I'm going to go on Amazon and order <laughs> right after this because it, um, it sounds Amazing, but can you jump into that and talk a little bit? What are what are some yeah. of his lessons of leadership? So <clears throat> there, there are so many things that, and I, I, you know, I wrote this book in a sense for myself, so that I don't want to forget what I learned. And you know, it's so hard to uh, to see somebody like this to learn from, a, you know, a real spiritual master, and then you forget. And so, in a way, mm -hmm. I wrote down uh, these lessons for myself primarily, and then I'm very happy to share it with everybody. Um, but he talked. Uh, he talked about this from a different. Like I, I never knew God the way that John Paul describes God and how he uh, the relationship we has with he has with God and therefore the prayer that he does. And so he he often would say that uh, we don't pray for God. We pray for ourselves. So our prayer doesn't change God one one iota because they ever unch they unchangeable. Um, but what it does is it is it's a. Uh, it's a change of our and the growth in our heart that we long towards God and, and, and grow closer to God. As far as uh, leading with people, you know, you see so many times, you, I, I do a lot of traveling around and talking about JP2, and often I hear, you know, I, uh, I was profoundly affected. I was only one in a million people at some World Youth Day or something, and when he spoke, I felt like he spoke to me. Or when he walked by and shook my hand, I, I, I just had a, an immense emotional, spiritual experience. We asked him about this and said, what, how do you, I mean, you just meet people nonstop. You know, how does this, how do you do this? And how do you maintain this 
this impact. And he it's just in most things, as he said, he would sort of laugh and say, it's not me. I, my favorite prayer is, or before I meet people, so when he, before he goes into a meeting, he says, Lord, the person I'm about to meet, you love them or they wouldn't exist. You give your only son for them or they wouldn't exist. Even if they were the only person on earth, you would give your only son just to save them. Let me see this person with your eyes. Let me not have any of my prejudgments or, uh, or, or preconceived notions, but let me meet them the way you see them. Because you must love them. I want to see them through your loving eyes. Every time before he goes, does anything, that's what he prays. Try it. It changes your, you know, it's, that, that's true prayer, isn't it? And I think that that was one of the ways that he allows himself to be a tool of the Holy Spirit. And so I, I try to do this when I manage uh, a team. I mean, try to do that before you evaluate somebody, uh, before you give them their review, before you hire somebody, before you uh, meet with somebody who made a mistake. Um, pray that and then let yourself be guided. That, by the, by the way, doesn't mean that he never scolded anybody or never got angry. I've seen him... Um, definitely correct people in some very public ways that, that he did that. that. That's, you know, the love of God is often misunderstood as everybody holding hand and singing Kumbaya. Uh, I don't think that that's what he practiced. What he practiced is what he called humility, which means to see God for who God is, and therefore to see the world and everybody as they, as things are, which means if something is out of whack, we have to fix it. And he wasn't, he wasn't afraid to praise things, but he also wasn't afraid to call out and to recognize true problems and, and then to ask them to be fixed or fix them himself. Andreas, you're a great teacher and an evangelist of the social teaching, a species of Catholic uh, uh, which we don't have enough of. <laughs> and yeah. you've really approached the social teaching of the Church in an interesting way the stand, from the standpoint of an entrepreneur and thinking about market research, if you're trying to sell a product, you know, the thing is received in the mode of the receiver, as we like to say. So how are they yeah. embracing, how are they understanding the product, so to speak, of Catholic social teaching? Tell us a little bit about what happened when you uh, did market research, so to speak, uh, with regard to Catholic social teaching. Yeah, so so I, you know, I did a lot of uh, consumer business and so on, and, and you, you do this... Uh, uh, you know, the mental model research on people to say, before you start to, quote, sell something or introduce a product, you want to use what words mean what to people so that you can use the right, right words to convey something. So we applied this to Catholic social teaching and said, before we start to teach social teaching, let's first see what people actually know and, and think. Um, and then we can, you know, and then you can correct that if you wish. And we found a couple of interesting things that, you see, one of the things with us Catholics is we all, we think we know, right? We know what the Church teaches, we know what the, the thing is, and so um, <clears throat> if you take just, uh, like, terms that are actually uh, very uh, Catholic in, in, in definition, solidarity is a term that, that the Catholic Church uses in Catholic uh, social teaching, has actually, she has that coined that term, solidarity and, and subsidiarity. And 
of course, right away, everybody, every Catholic says, yes, I know what the Church teaches, so I know it. Only 20% or so of Catholics say, actually, I don't know what this means. But then when you actually show them the terms, over half of all Catholics actually get that wrong. And they say, well, okay, now here's a definition. Tell me which definition actually is solidarity or subsidiarity. Less than 50% would recognize that correctly. What you're seeing there, and that's at the core of what I'm addressing, is that every time the Church uses these terms, people understand something else other than what she's teaching. So you can't use the term or you're saying something that people misunderstand. And then the other thing now, if you go out and you start to teach Catholic social teaching, and you start to explain it, you first have to overcome that how do you teach somebody some something to somebody when that somebody thinks they already know it. Mm. That's a very different thing than in school, where you teach somebody who comes because they're saying they don't know. And so what we're finding is that most of these, for example, there's another thing we're doing, we're measuring the appeal of the world. Of the word, you know, it, like in marketing, you use words that have a high emotional appeal. No matter what they mean, you want a high positive emotional appeal. <coughs> the highest emotional appeal we found is the term of common good. That is the very. It's one of the first uh, Catholic social teaching terms that has been used and defined by the Church. And it has it's off the charts. It's over ninety percent positive uh, emotional appeal. And less than 10% or about 10% of Catholics actually understand what this term means correctly. So you can see how this is a, this is a term that everybody uses, and this is a term that nobody really understands what, it, what, what she actually means by it. And that means we have a, a tremendous chasm on the one hand to rectify, to, to, for the Church to properly explain herself, but we also have a huge opportunity to explain a term that's so popular and positively resonating with our population. And so then we have to say, okay, uh, uh, it goes on with, with uh, things like um, justice. Uh, we only have about 75, uh, we have 75% of people who don't recognize what the church means by justice, right? And, and then even with social justice, which is a step further, we have about 60% of the people who don't understand what the Church actually means with this. And we went on to all kinds of other things. We, we wrote a little booklet about it uh, called Faithful Measure, and if you Google that, you find it on the Catholic website, Catholic uh, University website, and, and it, you can download it for free. It's a, it's a, um, you know, it's just a PDF that you can download. And in there you see all of the findings, and you, by the way, also see all the definitions that we used um, we did this research together with the Pontifical Council for Justice and Peace with Cardinal Turks mm. to make sure that what we're using it are actually the terms that the Church uses. Sure. So this this chasm of misunderstanding, you know, that's a that's a big discrepancy. You know, you're talking on the common good piece, ninety percent, and you know, ten. If I'm understanding you correctly, ten percent mm. are really understanding what that word means. Um, where, how do we get to this chasm? You know, like, what's the why behind why really that authentic Catholic social teaching is so little known among Catholics? So that's a huge, like you're saying, it's a huge opportunity and a, and a huge chasm. And yeah. how did we get there to that point where there's so much misunderstanding? You know, I believe that if we would do research like this on transubstantiation or on confession or Mary, the mother of God, and so on, I think we would have very similar results. Mm -hmm. I haven't tested those. I would just say there's 
every you know you know this famous lines where somebody says, "Well, I'm a Catholic," and and then that end is probably wrong. Um, <laughs> but we all feel feel ourselves to be experts as soon as we were baptized or something. Mm. Um, one of the things that I see as an as a as a, both an opportunity and as an issue is that there is a fundamental misunderstanding of what Catholic social teaching is. Mm-hmm. It's been abused and, and misused in many instances and in many situations, um, and it lends itself to be mis- uh, abused if you're not smart, if you're not uh, vigilant about it. The fundamental thing is because it's called doctrine, Catholic social doctrine, people think this is like the Ten Commandments. People are looking for do's and don'ts. Mm-hmm. Well, the Catholic social doctrine doesn't have any do's and don'ts. Catholic social doctrine is, a, is best described as a mental model, a way to think about problems. Catholic social doctrine doesn't give you any solutions. It's not like the Decalogue where it says, you know, don't do this, do, you know, honor your mother and father, you know, don't have any other gods before me. That those are those are binary questions. There's a very clear commandment. That is not how social doctrine is. Social doctrine is a mindset, is a way to think about a problem that then needs to be mixed up with your conscience and applied into in the individual uh, application. So that is that is a very different approach than what you would do in a commandment or in something like a doctrinal thing that we usually have. That's why I like to call it social teaching rather than social doctrine, because, because it connotates the wrong kind of approach. It seems one of the impediments to, for people to receive the social doctrine is because they've misperceived it as a set of policy outcomes as opposed to that mental model, and therefore, yeah. they and it, because it produ- often proposes things that don't fit neatly in right or left categories, <coughs> excuse me, People seem to have this kind of native allergy to it. But how do we overcome that? How do we get beyond looking at Catholic social teaching as a set of policy prescriptions or outcomes and really more a framework that well-formed people to apply to the very concrete needs that they experience in front of them? My approach would, my recommendation, and I, I, you know, I don't claim to have the answer on this, but John Twenty-Third once said that what we need now our witnesses and witnessing is done through stories. And I think the best way to teach it is through applied stories, where you, it's like teaching in a classroom. It's almost like a case method, right? Where you go and you set yourself, uh, you say this and this happened, what should we do about it? And most of those situations, because of this story of saying, I was, like, I was offered to invest in a company that could determine uh, two people if they would have a child together, if that would if that child would inherit any diseases. And I was offered, and this is all computer based. And I was offered to invest in that, and so I had to make a decision. Now, if I use the Catholic social teaching for this, how do I think about this? Now, you can't quite bring abortion into this because there, there is no abortion in it because nobody has nobody would be killed, right? So what's so so I love to bring this up in my class or or, or or different talks that I go to, and then let the audience start to work this out, almost like in the Socratic method, and use these different terms of common good and human dignity, and solidarity and subsidiarity, and say, 
apply it to this and let's see where we go with it. It's always interesting to see what people find, uh, come up with out of that. Hmm. Yeah, and you're, men- you're mentioning stories. And so specifically, how can the creation story, you've talked about this in the past, but how can the creation story help us reframe our thinking about, you know, the social teaching of the church? You see, and, and that, that actually is the one that plays into this, that what God really, you know, John Paul would, I'd love to listen to him, how he talks about creation and, and, and Genesis and how God made all these, uh, God the Creator made the whole world and, and in beautiful imagery, you know, and, and when God finally made the animals, he made them out of clay. And then when God said, okay, let me make somebody in my image and likeness, he started off with clay again, which is like the animal, and he made us just like an animal, because that's what we are. And then the difference was that at the end he breathed his spirit in us. So the last, so the one thing that we're like God is really the spirit in us, not the physical, God, really, God doesn't look like us. We don't look like God, we, we have the spirit like God in us. And then what John Paul says is because of that spirit and because of that likeness, we get to be creators as well. We get to participate in God's creativity. And at the most sacred level, we call that marriage. That we get to co-create an ever-living human being and, and, and a, a mortal soul. That is why that you need to know that in order in order to understand any teaching the church has about sexuality human sexuality that this is how we create an immortal soul and by the way the reason why this has is associated with feelings of ecstasy and beauty is because that's a foretaste of heaven that god comes there and deposits this immortal soul that's the core of what he would call the theology of the body now you can extrapolate this and say well we can also create, because we're the stewards of this paradise, that we also create when we work. We can continue the work of creation, which we do on a daily basis through something called work. And then you're starting to see now, okay, somebody tells me to invest in a company that does X, Y, Z. I can now say, if I imitate God in this creativity, God has never, God doesn't create evil. God has you know, God creates goods that are truly good and services that truly serve, if you wish. So that's a question to us. Is this a product? It's, are these goods to, to, to determine this? Is this a good that is truly good? Mm-hmm. Is this a service that truly serves? And then we can, we, we can go through and see if this, would God do this? Right? It's literally like that. And that sort of leads us to the answers. But can you see that if we ask, would God do this, that this is not a commandment? This is a mental model. And I think that's what we have to keep in mind, that we cannot excuse ourselves and sort of dodge the thinking or dodge the responsibility to to abdicate our moral authority. We have to make a decision. John Paul loved to say to us, you have to make the decision. Mm-hmm. And I think this is one of the cornerstones of Catholic social teaching. We have to answer the call in our particular circumstances and in the context of the relationships uh, in which we are planted. That's an important and, I think, useful way of thinking about the social teaching of the Church. And Andreas Widmer, you have helped us do that today. Thanks very much for being with us. Andreas is the author of 
The Pope and the CEO, Pope John Paul II's Lessons to a Young Swiss Guard, and he is one of the co-authors of a study, Faithful Measure, which, as he said, you can found uh, Googling it, Faithful Measure. It's a PDF on the Catholic University of America's website where you can read more about the important research he's done. Andreas, thanks again for being with us, and God bless you. Thank you both very much. It was my pleasure. Thanks again. Take care. Mm -hmm. And we'll be back in a moment. In our classic Catholic social teaching segment this week, we are looking at Octogesima Advanians from Pope Paul VI in 1971. There was a tradition of popes after the encyclical of Leo XIII in 1891, Rerum Novarum, on the new things, to write encyclicals on the anniversary of this great charter encyclical of modern Catholic social teaching. And this was the encyclical that Pope Paul VI wrote on, Pope St. Paul VI, excuse me, on the 80th anniversary of Rerum Novarum. And that's why it's called Octogesima Advenians. And really, it's a fantastic encyclical to look at Christian political activity and what it is. Uh, he helps us understand and reminds us of the purpose of political life, which is ordered toward the common good, not individual goods or private goods, but the common good. And then talks about each person's role within that context. And, and to provide a little bit more context about the the social landscape that this encyclical is speaking to. Why would he need to write this and speak to this? And one of the reasons was uh, it followed immediately on the heels of the Second Vatican Council, the way in which the Second Vatican Council uh, laid out sort of a, a rapprochement, really, a way of operating or a mode of operating within newly democratic regimes and the growth of democratic and representative democracies around the world. This is something that the Church had been skeptical of for a long time, and the churches provide the it was the mission of the popes and the church and this is something that's been a continuous theme throughout the recent pontificates of helping christians navigate their responsibilities in a political environment that calls upon their participation to be sex successful democracies republics they can't work effectively without the participation of virtuous citizens so it's not no longer the passive ruler or the passive existence within the context of a monarchical regime where you have one ruler uh, and his administrative apparatus or her administrative apparatus that governs the society, representative government in which people have a participation and a role and a responsibility in a, very, in a more direct way requires the participation of virtuous citizens. So Pope Paul VI in this encyclical is helping to lay out some of the foundations of that as so many more nations were becoming democratic around the world. Yeah, and I think he gets right at the beginning, he gets at that, um, and he he sets it off for us, really. He sets up this this expectation of of what is expected of the laity and he says to take politics seriously at its different levels local regional national and worldwide is to affirm the duty of man of every man so he doubles down there every man so you might have said not me and then he says nope every man so you're in there to recognize the concrete reality and the value of freedom of choice that is offered to him to seek to bring about both the good of the city and of the nation and of mankind and so right up front there he's telling us this is the duty, you know, it's the duty of every man to be involved in this, to help the good of the city flourish, to help the good of mankind flourish. And when you do that, it helps, it helps these goods flourish. That there's a responsibility for a shared participant or a shared responsibility, right? Mm -hmm. We can't just delegate it to someone else. And that doesn't mean again, that we all have the same uh, roles and responsibilities per mm -hmm. se, but it all means we do have a part to play. And, and he talks about that. The ne they need to become involved, not just in thinking about politics or, um, uh, 
but really transmitting our gospel values into concrete forms of action and being engaged, again, with, a, with attention to the fact that we all have different gifts, which means we have different roles and responsibilities to play. Mm-hmm. And he talks about, too, in, in this, he has a section about this call to action that you're speaking about, Jason, and he, he, he begins it by talking about how the church helps us with that. You know, the church, the church's help and how the church does t- two things, right, and enlightens our minds and to assist us to discover the truth. And if you, um, our discussion with Andreas Widmer just now, I think, speaks to that as well. You know, the the mental framework of Catholic social teaching helps us to think through and shed light um, on different situations and to choose different paths to follow among different teachings. And secondly, um, it helps us to actually take part and take action on those things, you know, so he does those, those two things. And then it said all men should set themselves to the task. And he, he refers to the individuality of it, where he says laymen should take up as their own proper task, the, the renewal of the temporal order. So as we're saying, it's not going to look the same for everybody, but there is your own task to help renew the order, you know, so um, each person has that task. Yeah, he says each one is to determine what responsibility it is that's set before them. And as he describes it, this there's a section, section 50, called a pluralism of options. Oftentimes we think because we're not capable of being a legislator or someone who's writing op-eds or a scholar or something that we can't participate in public life, when in fact we can. And there's really a diversity of options, and we take that mental model, as Andreas was describing, and apply that to the concrete needs that are right in front of us. Mm-hmm. And I think as well, it's, you know, it's amazing even in talking about the, this, how well it just goes with our conversation with Andreas, because he talked about stories, you know, and the importance of stories and, and, um, St. Paul Paul VI talks about that kind of as well in a, in a certain way. He says, talks about today more than ever, the word of God will be unable to be proclaimed and heard unless it is accompanied by the witness of the power of the Holy Spirit, working within the action of Christians in the service of their brothers at the points in which their existence and their future are at stake. You know, so how are we taking, how are we taking action with our faith and to ask ourselves, what story are we telling, you know, and and what story are we telling through our actions and how we take up this task in our lives? Because that witness is what corresponds to the proclamation of the gospel, you know, and they have to go together in the power of the Holy Spirit, you know, because I'm, th- I'm thinking of, we just, that just this past Sunday, we had Romans 10, you know, as our, as our second reading, you know, if you proclaim um, Christ with your, be- your lips and believe in your heart that, you know, Jesus is Lord, you know, you will be saved. And so the, the proclamation of the gospel has to go with these, these living out that we're doing by taking action, you know, it's not, it's not going to happen by, by us, being idle. And he really highlights a danger for those of us who are involved really actively in Mm -hmm. politics in that same sense. There's a tendency to get really passionate about issues. But as he notes, politics are a demanding matter, but not the only one of living the Christian commitment to the service of others. And he goes on to say, an attitude of encroachment, which would tend to set up politics as an absolute value, would bring serious danger. So our horizon has to be eschatological, so to speak. It has to be the kingdom. It can't be the temporal order. Now, we work for the good of the temporal order because it's part of our call and our vocation, but we have to remember why we do so. And then he goes on later in section 51 to remind us that we do politics and we do um, work in the temporal arena precisely for the sake of the gospel. He says, today more than ever, the word of God will be unable to be proclaimed and heard unless it is accompanied by the witness of the power of the Holy Spirit 
working within the action of the Christian in the service of their brothers at the point in which their existence and their future are at stake. So we engage the social arena. We embrace the social mission of the church precisely because it makes us credible witnesses of the gospel. Mm -hmm. So we always have to situate properly, he tells us, our political engagement in the context of the mission of evangelization. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a danger that sometimes we fall into, you know, the church is not an elevated social club. You know, she's not an elevated social services organization. You know, she is the vessel through which Christ has established his grace and his mercy to go to the entire world so that people can be saved and Jesus can take them to the Father. You know, and we do that through filling temporal needs, but we need to always remember that as we're, as we're working on these issues, as we're saying, and I think as uh, St. Pope Paul VI, you know, echoes from Miriam Navarum that we need to keep that as the forefront. That doesn't mean only spir- only things that are directly spiritual I deal with, but how is the, our service um, achieving that goal? You know, how is the way that we serve? How is the way that we... Um, engage with our neighbors, engage with our politicians, take action on these issues, fulfilling the mission of the church, you know, which is to bring souls to heaven, not to be another cool social organization. Pope Francis, who was deeply influenced by Pope Paul VI and his pontificate and indeed canonized Pope Mm -hmm. Paul VI recently, um, likes to say that the church is not an NGO, a Mm non-governmental organization, right? It's not just a social service ministry. It is, like you said, the vessel, the instrument of the sacrament of salvation in the world and the vessel of salvation. And we do these things, we engage the social order because we care and love our brothers and sisters and want to protect their dignity. But we always have to do so in light of the, the real fundamental why of the church, which is to bring souls deeper into relationship with Christ and keep them out of hell, let it be said. Mm-hmm. Octagesima Adveniens on the 80th anniversary of Rerum Novarum, an encyclical of Pope Paul VI, one that we commend to your attention. Uh, we'll be back in a moment with our Bricklayer segment. Oftentimes, it's hard to know just what to do. The cha- the choices and the options and the challenges, they just seem overwhelming. And I think it intimidates people to get involved in social and political life. They just don't know what to do. They don't feel equipped. God doesn't call the equipped, as we like to say. He equips the called. But how do we know what we're called to? How do we discern that? Um, how do we apply our gifts? And you have gifts. Everyone has gifts that only you have. And God has created you to use those gifts in the context of your corner of the vineyard. But what do we do to discern those gifts? How can we embrace this call that Pope Paul VI has blessed us with and the church blesses us with to evangelize in the context of the social and political spheres? Yeah, I think, you know, we talk, as I mentioned earlier, we talk a lot about taking action and, you know, not not staying idle and going out into the public arena. But as we just talked about in, in the um classic Catholic social teaching segment is that there's this, there's a task, there's tasks that are proper to you, right? That not everyone does the same thing. Not everyone takes action in the same way. And so we want to take some steps back and talk about ways that you can identify what your gifts are. Because as Jason just said, God has gifted you in ways that he hasn't gifted others, you know, and not only with natural gifts, but God has also through the Holy Spirit gifted you through the sacraments with charisms, um, with charisms that he's given you to use for his kingdom. And I think a lot of times for many of us, they lie dormant in us and we're never able to discover um, 
discover those things particular to us or the strengths particular to us. And I think by taking some time to really reflect and use some resources to to pray and figure out what are these things in me that God has given me that he wants to awaken even more in me that I'm naturally gifted with that help me figure out what the task is for me. Um, and so there's a couple different resources, both actually that I have I've used. I want to mention two. The first being um, uh, Called and Gifted. It's a, it's a workshop that you can do through the St. Catherine of Siena Institute. You can look that up online. Um, and they have a lot of great resources on their site. And that helps you kind of take stock of how God has gifted you. You know, it, it, asks, it asks questions and helps you figure out what are my charisms? You know, are there things that are lying dormant in me that the Holy Spirit wants to awaken that I can use my gifts for? Um, and, and then there's another one as well that I've also used that I think is a, you know, it's a more secular resource, but I think it's a good one, which is the Strengths Finder. Um, and you can get, there's a book available. You can go online. They have a, a good website. And again, it asks you questions and gets you to think um, and helps you. It lays out kind of what, what it evaluates as your top five strengths, you know, and for me, there these these things always peg me because I'm an extreme personality, so they always peg me, exactly. But I found it very helpful to be able to say, actually, I see that, you know, I see that particular, you know, problem solving strength, or I see that, and so then having some sense of um, of these things that that could be a part of me help me to see, you know, actually, I'm a, one of my strengths is for me pro- to be personal. One of my strengths is. Um, you know, dealing with others as relationships, you know, building relationships. So that helps me see where should I put my, what am I drawn to in terms of the public arena and where should I put, you know, my time and my effort? You know, I love to meet new people. I love to build new relationships. And so that's drawn me to areas where I'm able to encounter new people on certain issues. Um, And so that's just an example of two examples, again, called and gifted from the St. Catherine of Siena Institute that will help you discover some charisms. Um, They have, they have a, um, kind of a course that you can do a little workshop, but they also have resources online. And then also the Strengths Finder, I think, are two good resources that we'll put out there. Oftentimes, we are always focused on correcting our weaknesses. Mm-hmm. But there's something to be said for building on our strengths, yeah. right? And I think those are some of those tools that you've highlighted help us identify those strengths or those gifts and then mm-hmm. be effective stewards of those gifts, right? Because mm-hmm. we don't want to not be good stewards of our gifts, mm-hmm. like the parable of the talents says that's there's a gifts talents that's a an appropriate word choice there right um sometimes it's discerning gifts but also sometimes it's renewing a sense of your own profession or vocation and the Mm -hmm. role you can play within that yeah um so the church has uh through collaborative efforts come out with documents one both produced locally first of all i mentioned the vocation of a business leader Mm -hmm. and the vocation of the agricultural leader the vocation of the business leader published at the university of saint thomas and with the vatican through the john ryan institute for catholic social teaching and then catholic rural life has come out with the vocation of an agricultural leader so how do i live more deeply this particular profession to which i've been called Mm -hmm. and those are some great resources in thinking more about that that we can't compartmentalize our professional life and our prayer life, for example, mm-hmm. that we really have a role to play within a particular industry or a particular type of work that can be a point of evangelization that can lighten the burden mm-hmm. um, and really improve things for others. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and both I've read both of those documents and they're extremely, you know, helpful. Even as someone who wasn't a business leader at the time, you know, I read I read Vocation of the Business Leader in college. It was very helpful. But on, and on top of all of this too, as you're discerning through these things, prayer is huge. You know, following the lead of the Holy Spirit to to guide you um, to to what God is doing in you, what He's leading you to, and I guarantee you that the strengths that God has given you correspond to a need in the world. You know, that's how he's designed us. That's how he's, he's set it up in, in the great plan and adventure of following him. So take some of that time to, to just pray as well. And a great apostle of prayer and identifying gifts and thinking about the spiritual life in our day to day. Someone who is just here in, in Minnesota, Jacques Philippe. Mm-hmm. And Jacques Philippe's books are extraordinary resources in that regard as well. So uh, oftentimes we give people practical direction during the bricklayer segment about what they can do or concrete steps they can take. And those are suggestions for you to live your discipleship in the public arena more deeply. But today we really wanted to focus on some of the tools that you can for use in discernment. And Rachel has done a great job identifying some of those for us. Obviously there are plenty out there, but certainly some of the called and gifted workshops are a great place to start. Mm-hmm. Well, again, a thank, big thank you to Relevant Radio 1330 AM uh, for hosting us in studio today and to our sponsor, the Knights of Columbus, Minnesota State Council, the Knights of Columbus are building the domestic church. And thank you for listening. Make sure to share this podcast with all your friends and family, which you can find on pretty much all the podcast platforms, SoundCloud, uh, iTunes, etc., etc. And what better way to end a podcast of great conversations than with great sacred music as we near Easter Sunday and prepare, prepare for the, the rising and resurrection of our Lord from the dead, we leave you with Surgens Jesus, Jesus Rising, I hope I said that right, performed by the National Catholic Youth Choir at St. John's University. God bless you all. Thanks for listening.